It is indeed, and seven minutes it is now after 8 p.m. Uh, we now, uh, uh, this evening, uh, have an opportunity to speak to Professor Adekeya Adebayo, and uh, uh, he's the director for the Institute of Pan-African Thought and Conversation at the University of Johannesburg. And we talked to him uh, as uh, Nigeria celebrates its uh, 60 years of independence, and uh, certainly a poignant moment to reflect at uh, a time, as uh, we were saying in our business wrap earlier on, where the Nigerian economy continues to be battle uh, from a, a very strong reliance on uh, oil exports and, uh, of course, vagaries of uh, commodity prices, uh, which are certainly having a massive impact uh, on uh, not only the ability to raise revenue for the Abuja-based government, but also uh, on the back of uh, all of, uh, I guess, uh, some of the uh, challenges with the oil price, the ability uh, really to uh, uh, inject much-needed stimulus into many parts of the economy that have certainly been ravaged by COVID-19. But it's also an opportunity to reflect on uh, a very rich history, a, a history uh, defined, of course, by a great deal of optimism uh, around uh, October 1, 1960, uh, met, of course, with also, I guess, the disappointment of coups, military dictatorships, uh, of course, the Biafra episode as well, and uh, certainly many other challenges that continue uh, uh, to uh, face uh, the young and growing nation of Nigeria. And uh, uh, Professor Adekeya Adebajo joins me now on the line. Prof, good evening to you and welcome. Good evening. Thank you for having me. Prof, maybe I want us to start here. I guess, you know, uh, one of the big challenges we have in South Africa is that uh, certainly how uh, we've educated people, how we've socialized people for, you know, uh, probably the last 200 to 300 or even 400 years has always assumed that South Africa is this, you know, very insular, isolated country on the southern tip of uh, the continent and as such we really haven't engaged with the very rich diverse historical experiences of nations like Nigeria and maybe that might be a good starting point because I don't think it would be safe for us to assume that all of us are familiar with the history of Nigeria uh, uh, even I guess you know uh, uh, in the colonial era uh, and of course uh, the historic developments around October 1 1960 so maybe let's start off there and we'll get to some of the more contemporary geopolitical questions uh, that arise from, from Africa's, pop, uh, Af Africa's most populous nation. Okay, thank you very much. Well, Nigeria was a British colony, and it won its independence exactly 60 years ago, on the 1st of October of 1960. It's got the largest population in Africa at nearly 200 million citizens, and it has 250 ethnic groups speaking a hundred languages. So it, there have been lots of problems trying to turn this country into a functioning nation. Uh, the first republic uh, in the 60s had three regions which fell apart, as you noted, and there was a nasty civil war between 1967 to 1970 that resulted in a million, a million dead, mostly in the east, which is the region that tried to secede from the country. There was quite good reconciliation post-war, even though mm. the Igbos in the east haven't been completely integrated back into Nigeria. Yes. And Prof, sorry, I think sorry, Prof. Uh, yeah, Prof, sorry, ahead. I hate go to do ahead. this. I hate to do this. I, we need to pause here slightly and just uh, take a quick spot break. But when we come back, I want you to continue on that same vein. Uh, and I guess, of course, some of the earlier experiences of nation building and nationhood uh, in Nigeria. We're in conversation with Professor Adekeye Adebajo. We continue after this. 
13 minutes it is after 8 p.m. It's our Thought Leader Thursday segment uh, here on Metro FM Talk. And uh, uh, we take a look at uh, the history of Nigeria on this Thursday. And I'm joined by Professor Adekeya Adebajo. Prof, uh, I disrupted you there to uh, head to a spot break. But uh, I'd, li- I'd like you to continue just on, uh, I guess, some of the early experiences of nationhood and the state formation that uh, you were making mention of earlier before we went to the break. Okay, thank you. Let me just start from 1960. As I said, Nigeria gained its independence from Britain on October 1st, 1960. Mm-hmm. And is a country with 200 million citizens, 250 ethnic groups speaking 100 languages. So it's basically been a state in search of a nation. The first republic in the 1960s had three big regions. Uh, that didn't work out. There was a military coup in January and then another one in July, and it led eventually to a civil war where the eastern region tried to secede, and there were a million deaths. After that, in the 1970s, you had reconciliation under General Gowan, which was quite impressive, even though the Igbos in the east haven't been completely reintegrated into Nigeria. But this was the period when oil came into came online in large quantities and there was actually quite a lot of infrastructural development during this period and there was a national youth service corps that was founded to send all university graduates to different parts of the country to improve social cohesion and there was also an indigenization program that uh, got more nigerians into owning businesses. The Second Republic from 79 to 83 was a very kleptocratic regime, and I think the beginning of Nigeria's downward spiral, in my view, can be put down to the Second Republic. We ended up with a $16 billion external debt and profligate politicians who did not really promote much governance. We then had a period after that of military governments for 16 years, and you probably remember some of them. General Babangida uh, Mm. ended up with a $30 billion debt. Sorry, did you want me to say something? No, 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 I'm saying please go ahead. Okay, so, and then you had General Abacha also, between 1993 and 98, and you'll remember he hanged Ken Sarawiwa uh, and eight other environmental campaigners in November 1995, and it caused a real spat between Mandela and Abacha at the time. And this was also a period of profligacy where three, $3 billion basically had to be returned by the Abacha family to the country during this period. You then had, since 1999, the Fourth Republic uh, in Nigeria. The Third Republic Mm. failed when an election was cancelled in June 1993. And since then, you've had basically four administrations who have tried in various ways to try to get the country's economy back on track. Mm. And, And when you look at, I guess, you know, this very checkered history, um, and if you were to maybe, I guess, uh, pinpoint and say this is the political identity of, uh, or even this is, I guess, the, the flavor of democracy or, or political identity 
of Nigeria. How, how would you characterize that? How, how would you define that um, when you think about all of these very different stages? I mean, you've defined one stage as what you see as the kleptocratic phase. Uh, mm. How would you, I guess, uh, define some of the phases subsequent to 1999 uh, from the perspective, I guess, of understanding that experience of nation building and statehood? Well, I mean, you had basically two failed democratic experiments, and then you had four military regimes. So I would divide those phases between two republics, one of them trying to implement a Westminster-style British parliamentary system, and the other one, the Second Republic, trying to basically implement a U.S.-style presidential election. And neither of them, I think, were totally successful. We're still now in the Fourth Republic experimenting with a U.S.-style presidential election with two houses and an executive. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, a lot of people have spoken about, uh, you know, this idea of uh, godfather politics. And uh, I guess, you know, uh, I pose this question at a very relevant time, even for us here in South Africa, where we're deliberating around the funding of political organizations, political campaigns for power, uh, and I guess the political economy that emerges uh, from that particular issue. What, what, what do you make, I guess, of the role that money has played in Nigerian politics in the context of uh, you know, the oil reliance that we were speaking about earlier on. Yeah, well, I mean, 90% of Nigeria's foreign exchange earnings and half of its government revenues is still from oil. So the economy has not been diversified in the last six decades. And mm. the, two main poli- the two main political parties, um, basically the, a- the ruling APC and the opposition PDP, have effectively served as vehicles for political elites to fulfill their political ambitions and to enrich themselves. And I'll give you one quite staggering statistic, which is that it's been estimated that $582 billion has been pilfered and siphoned off into foreign bank accounts since Nigeria's independence. And that figure says everything you want to know about both the greed of the politicians and the soldiers in Nigeria's politics. These are not political parties with firmly established roots in, you know, local communities and with strong ideologies and ideas where people can differentiate. These are basically vehicles for political elites to pursue their own parochial interests, largely. Mm, 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 mm. I want us to pause here for a second once again, uh, Prof, uh, and uh, while we go to a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we'll uh, shift away from the politics slightly and talk about Nigeria's social cultural contribution uh, to the uh, development of post-colonial Africa. We'll also touch, uh, I guess, on uh, you know some of the geopolitics of the current moment and uh, Nigeria's role on the continent and I guess uh, also Nigeria-South Africa relations. We'll continue on the other side of this. 22 minutes it is now after 8 p.m. I'm still in conversation with uh, Professor uh, Adekeya Adebajo, and uh, he's the director at the Institute for Pan-African Thought and Conversation. And, uh, Prof, I want us to shift now our discussion of Nigeria over the last 60 years or so to Nigeria's geopolitical contribution, not just in the current moment, but uh, during, I guess, successive moments in geopolitics globally and on the continent over the last 60 years or so. What, what do you make of their role? 
Okay. Well, I think this is an area where we do have to give Nigeria quite a lot of praise. Over the last 60 mm. years, Nigeria has contributed over 150,000 peacekeepers to international peacekeeping missions, mostly with the United Nations. But in the 1990s and 2000s, Nigeria also led ECOMOG, which was a West African peacekeeping force, to make mm. peace in Liberia and Sierra Leone at the cost of 1,500 fatalities and about a billion dollars. And I think a bit earlier also, Nigeria played quite an important role in being basically effectively a de facto member of the frontline states of Southern Africa, attending its meetings and providing support to liberation movements across Southern Africa and to apartheid South Africa as well. And it chaired for most of its history the UN Special Committee Against Apartheid. So I think Nigeria played a creditable role in terms mm. of geopolitics. And within West Africa itself, it led the creation of the economic community of West African states, which is your equivalent of SADC. And um, since it constitutes 68% of West Africa's economy and hosts the ECOWAS Commission in Abuja, it basically has also tried to play a role in promoting regional integration across West Africa. Mm, mm. And, and I mean, I guess, you know, just as you're touching on some of that history, I mean, a lot of it bumps up against uh, the anti-apartheid movement and the role of, of many of the, uh, you know, states on the continent, uh, uh, you know, the Organization for African Unity, the frontline states and many others. Um, and then I guess in, in the post-apartheid period, uh, there's certainly been, I guess, different phases. You touched on uh, the issue between, uh, I think, Sani Abacha and Nelson Mandela around uh, the issue of Kensaro Wiwa. Uh, and we've also seen in more recent times uh, a few impasses that have not only just involved diplomatic spats around immigration policy, but also, I guess, uh, the role of South African corporations in Nigeria. Yes. I mean, the relationship with Nigeria is a really critical relationship. I describe it as the indispensable relationship in Africa, because both countries account for about a third of Africa's economy. And both of them have two of its most powerful militaries, and they've also contributed to peacemaking and peacekeeping across the continent in places like DRC, Burundi, in the case of South Africa, and I mentioned Liberia and Sierra Leone for Nigeria. But the relationship went through three basic phases. Uh, as you noted, there were tensions between Mandela and Abacha, uh, in 95, after the hanging of those nine environmental campaigners, and that created a rift between Nigeria and South Africa. And so there wasn't as much cooperation then. The golden age of the relationship was between 1999 and 2007, when Thabo Mbeki and Olusegun Obasanjo were in power in both countries. And this is when they set up a binational commission to try to manage the bilateral relationship. They coordinated their actions at the African Union, NEPAD, the UN, and in fact, they created many of these African Union institutions during this period. And, but subsequently, 
the relationship soured after they both left power. So it wasn't institutionalized. It was more of an individual relationship. There's also mm. a feeling among Nigerians, just let me make this last point, that the South Africans have benefited a lot more from this relationship economically because South Africa has mostly bought oil from Nigeria and there aren't a lot of Nigerian companies investing in the South African economy. But in South Africa, you've had MTN, you've had ShopRite, you've mm. had uh, Protea Hotels investing heavily in Nigeria, even though some of these have now, like ShopRite, has decided to pull out of Nigeria, as Protea did, and there have been problems between MTN and the Nigerian government. But MTN has more subscribers in Nigeria than it has in South Africa, so it's a mm. very important market for it. Why, why, why would you, I mean, why do you think that that relationship has been so asymmetrical or unequal? Um, that on the one hand, you know, a lot of South African companies have gone into Nigeria. I mean, I recall a few years ago going to a party, uh, you know, in Lagos and, and hosted by the South African Nigeria Chamber of, of uh, Business. And there were more South African companies there, uh, without a shadow of a doubt, than uh, maybe Nigerian companies, which reflects, I guess, this imbalance in, in uh, corporate power that you're speaking about. What, what would you say accounts for that? I think part of it is the structure of the economies of both countries. You know, South Africa is the most industrialized economy in Africa, even if South Af even if Nigeria is the largest economy in Africa. So I mentioned to you that 90% of our Nigeria's foreign exchange earnings and 50% of government revenues is still from oil. So it means Nigeria doesn't have as diverse an economy as South Africa does. South Africa's economy is also quite saturated. So in terms of banking and those kind of sectors, it's very hard for Nigerian banks to be able to come in and penetrate the South African market. So with a few exceptions like Dangote's uh, cement company and a few others, there haven't really been as many Nigerian investors. But I think it's largely structural. It has to do with the nature of both economies as well. Mm -hmm. Let's talk sociocultural influence. Um, I think, you know, one thing we can't run away from uh, is, um, you know, certainly in recent years, the, the cross-pollination of, you know, cultural flows between the two nations, South Africa and, and Nigeria. Uh, and, and without a doubt, I think, uh, you know, we can't uh, avoid the fact that Nigeria is a dominant cultural presence on the continent. What do you make of that? And I guess, uh, you know, uh, uh, would you say Nigeria has been able uh, to really exploit that to its own benefit? Yes, I think the most important and most talked about aspect of what we call Nigeria's cultural soft power is Nollywood, which is the second largest film producer in the world behind India's Bollywood. Uh, and it's the second largest employer in Nigeria also. And mm. Nollywood has had a tremendous impact. Yes, it's bigger than Hollywood. It produces more films than Hollywood. And it's had a tremendous cultural aspect. I mean, on DSTV, there are three or four channels that show 24 hours Nollywood. And it's had a cultural impact on South Africans, whether students or ordinary South Africans. Uh, and not just South Africans, but across the continent and even in the Caribbean and the U.S.
Nollywood is very big. There are also Nigerian artists. You think of Tiwa Savage, Wizkid, Burner Boy. These are household names among the youths in South Africa and really big cultural exports of Nigeria. And I think the final cultural aspect that one can touch on, the fact that Nigeria produced the first Nobel Prize for Literature, Wale Shoinkai, in 1986, even before Nadine Gordima and Kutsir became Nobel laureates. Uh, the Manbuka Prize was won by Chinyu Achebe, Ben Okri, the Booker Prize, and Benadine Everisto, who is also of Nigerian descent. And then Chimamande Adichie is also another great writer who is, I think, widely read here in South Africa and elsewhere. So I would say those are the more positive aspects. The last thing I would just mention is that in 1977, Nigeria hosted the World Black and African Festival of Arts and Culture. It cost in today's money $1.7 billion, and it had 70,000 artists and delegates from 59 countries. And that was quite important also in terms of the South African anti-apartheid movement, because Ipitombi, one of the South African cultural troops, played in that and sung messages of anti-apartheid, and it was a global Pan-African audience. So Nigeria deserves some credit in terms of the way that it's exported its cultural soft power as well. Mm-hmm. And I like how you characterize that as cultural soft power, because um, at, at this critical moment where links are being made between Africans on the continent and many of those in, in the diaspora, around or coalescing around a global anti-racism movement. Uh, I often ask myself, what becomes the role of Nigeria as Africa's most populous nation, as Africa's probably uh, most culturally dominant nation, um, in thinking about a global reality uh, that is uh, probably more equitable, but uh, I guess uh, from an anti-racism lens is probably a lot more egalitarian. Absolutely. I mean, the Black Lives The Black Lives Matter movement has taken the world by storm and has made sure that there have been protests and focus on discrimination on black people, not just in America, but across Europe, in countries like France and Belgium, and made sure that the visible symbols of this oppression are ones that have been challenged and in some cases torn down. So it's important that countries like Nigeria and South Africa also take part in that global movement because it is, these are the descendants of the slave trade when 12 to 15 million people were taken out of Africa across Mm. the Atlantic you know, over 350, 400 years between the 15th and 19th century. So it's very important that those links between both struggles are not lost because the African-American groups like Trans-Africa and the Congressional Black Caucus were absolutely instrumental in making sure that sanctions were passed against apartheid South Africa And we've lost some of those bridges and links between Africa Mm. and the diaspora. And they need to be rebuilt now. It's very important, also with the Caribbean.
Prof, fascinating contributions, and uh, we can certainly uh, uh, talk about some of these things uh, right up until uh, the cows come home. But unfortunately, uh, we've got very limited time to do so, and uh, we have run out of it. And I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for uh, coming to speak to us uh, on uh, some of the uh, issues, of course, uh, uh, that we can reflect on as Nigeria uh, turns 60 uh, at, uh, at this point here today on the 1st of October. Professor Adekeya Adebajo, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Bye. Uh, Professor Adekeya Adebajo, uh, Director of the Institute for Pan-African Thought and Conversation at the University of Johannesburg. Let's take this brief break. And uh, when uh, we uh, come back, uh, we uh, take a look at a uh, second official in uh, the uh, province of Gauteng's health department suspended over COVID-19 contracts. And we'll also take a look at uh, travelers who have found themselves stranded at the Bay Bridge border. Chose.